Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Julius Baer's Moving Markets podcast. It's Thursday, the 17th of August, and my name is Helen Freer. So we had lots of data out yesterday and, of course, the latest Fed meeting minutes. On this morning's show, I'll be talking about this and more market news with my colleague, John T. Warris. Carsten Menke also joins us and I'll be asking him about industrial metals in light of the recent data we've had out of China. And then Ronnie Kaufman will give us an update from the CIO office. But let's start with the latest market news. Good morning, John T. Good morning, Helen. So we saw a raft of economic data yesterday with US housing starts and industrial production, along with the eagerly awaited FOMC minutes. Perhaps let's start there. What did the minutes tell us? Yes, that's right. Overnight, the minutes from the FOMC's July meeting were published, but they didn't tell us too much more than we already knew, to be honest. The minutes showed that most Fed officials still saw significant upside inflation risk. Uh, that its voting members scrapped their recession call, and also that some members saw a smaller jobless rate rise. The minutes showed that some officials saw downside growth, even in spite of some of the uh, recent resilience, whereas others worried that tighter financial conditions could cause a sharper economic slowdown. Elsewhere, as you mentioned a moment ago, there was more economic data out of the US yesterday, which gave uh, some quite reassuring signs to investors. U.S. factory production rose in July for the first time in three months, boosted by motor vehicle output, and also new U.S. home construction rose in July on strength in the single-family home segment, given the rather limited supply in the market. So how did markets react to this news then? Well, U.S. equities traded lower in yesterday's session, staying low following the release of the FOMC minutes and closing not far off their session lows. The S&P 500 continued to push below its 50-day moving average, while the tech-heavy Nasdaq finished at its lowest level since the 26th of June. In currencies, the US dollar was better versus the yen and the euro, but fared weaker versus the pound sterling. And in commodities, gold lost a little more of its shine, fishing down 0.4%, but uh, Carsten will fill us in there uh, in a moment on the latest. And we also saw WTI crude dropping 2%, closing below $80 a barrel for the first time in two weeks. In fixed income, US Treasuries were weaker with some curve steepening. The yield on the 10-year reached its highest level since October, trading at 431 I checked a moment ago, with the yields on the two-year Treasury at around 499 Investors in US Treasury debt are faced with losses as long maturity yields are approaching their 2022 highs. Now let's talk about Asia Pacific. I see China has been intervening to counter some of the weakness in its currency. What can you tell us there? Yes, that's right. China has uh, redoubled its efforts to stem some of the losses uh, in its ailing yuan by offering the most forceful guidance that we've seen since October through its uh, daily reference. The offshore yuan retreated further, as did Chinese stocks, with the Hang Seng now trading some 20% below its January high. Bloomberg reports that the housing slump is actually much worse than official figures would otherwise indicate, according to signals from property agents and private data providers. But China's struggling economy and markets continue to unnerve world markets, making for a bumpy ride in global markets in August so far. And how have markets reacted in Asia-Pacific overnight? Well, uh, Asian equities are largely trading lower so far today. The Nikkei, the ASX and the Hang Seng were down by around 1%, but have recovered a little over the morning, uh, although still trading in the red. 
This will be of worry to investors following yesterday's fall in Chinese and emerging market stocks further below their support levels. Uh, and yesterday, as I mentioned before, the UN hit a um, 40-week low versus US dollar and could potentially reach a new all-time low if the current trend continues. Meanwhile, the yield premium on 10-year US treasuries over Chinese equivalents hit its highest in 16 years yesterday. And in Europe, we also saw quite a few new data prints yesterday. What were the highlights here? That's right. We saw Eurozone industrial production and GDP figures uh, published yesterday, which showed that on an annual basis, Eurozone grew by just uh, 0.6%, its worst performance since the recession of 2020-21. The picture was mixed, however, with Ireland recording growth of 3.3%, the largest in the Eurozone, while France and Spain were more typical with growth of around half a percentage point each. Uh, Germany stagnated and Italy contracted by 0.3%. And Dutch GDP figures published yesterday show that the Netherlands has actually fallen into recession as the economy shrank by 0.3% on a quarterly basis in Q2 after the Eurozone's fifth largest economy shrank for the second consecutive quarter. Okay, sounds like there are some signs of encouragement in the latest figures then, but by and large, the overall picture in Europe remains relatively weak. Looking ahead then, what can we expect for the day ahead? Sure. Well, later this morning, Norway's central bank will be announcing its latest interest rate decision with expectations for a hike of 25 basis points, which would lift the deposit rate to 4%. Uh, with Norges Bank currently reckoning with a peak rate at some point of around 4.25. Later this morning, Eurozone trade balance data for June is also expected. And this afternoon, we'll see US initial jobless claims and leading index data. And a quick look at the futures board shows that the US is set for a mixed, rather flat open later today. And that's about it from me for today. Great. Thanks very much, John T, for the informative roundup this morning. Thank you for having me, Helen. Now, Carsten, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us this morning. We've received a lot of negative news out of China recently, and this week's economic activity data wasn't any different, was it? Well, no, unfortunately not. Uh, So the Chinese economy is struggling on a broad basis. Investment, manufacturing and retail sales were all weaker than expected. From an industrial metals point of view, uh, of course, the focus is clearly on investment, as this is driving the demand for metals such as aluminium, copper, iron ore and steel. Okay, and how relevant is the investment side of the economy in terms of the demand for metals? Well, you cannot overestimate its uh, importance. It is really the single most important driver. Investments in infrastructure and property account for between 25% and 60% of industrial metals demand in China with aluminium least and steel most exposed. Measured in tons, this is more than the demand of entire countries. Let's talk about the elephant in the room now, property. The property market has been struggling for over a year now. How bad would you say it is? Well, there are many perspectives one can take to discuss the impact of the property market in China. Equities, bonds of property developers, the loans the banks have on their balance sheets, and the reluctance of the consumers to enter the property market. Again, from an industrial metals point of view, the softness of the property market is a major drag on demand. To put things into perspective, property starts, which are our key gauge for industrial metals demand, are currently at an annualized run rate of 0.7 billion square meters. 
This compares to almost 1.5 billion square meters for the five-year average. So we're down more than 50%. And what about infrastructure? Isn't this the area that the government can easily boost? Well, theoretically, yes. In practice, we're seeing a slowdown in infrastructure investments. So clearly, the government is far from going all in on infrastructure stimulus. This may have different reasons, ranging from a well-built infrastructure in many large cities to over-indebtedness of some local governments. So what's the government doing then? They cut interest rates again this week. Do you think this will get the economy going? Um, We don't think this is going to be sufficient because the struggles are running deeper. It's a mix of, let's say, cyclical and structural factors. And crucially for the industrial metals, China's population is shrinking and urbanization is slowing, which means that fewer apartments will be needed in the future. Adding in financial constraints on the sides of the consumer, we thus do not believe that lower interest rates will revive the property market. Furthermore, a big boost to infrastructure investments does not seem very likely as well due to the debt and funding constraints of local governments. And how does this affect our views on industrial metals? Well, basically, these elements are already reflected in our established views on the industrial metals. Iron ore remains our least preferred metal due to its outsized exposure to China's infrastructure and property segments. In contrast, copper remains our most preferred metal. While also exposed to China, it should eventually benefit from strongly growing energy transition-related demand and a slowdown in mine supply growth. So we clearly see copper moving back above $10,000 per tonne at some point. Okay, and last but not least, as we have you on the show today, I have to ask you about gold. I saw that it broke below $1,900 per ounce yesterday. What's mm-hmm. going on in the gold market, Carsten? Well, the trigger for yesterday's sell-off were the minutes from the US Federal Market Open Committee, which John T. already commented on. Uh, so this is the interest rate setting body of the Federal Reserve. And the minutes showed that they are still concerned about inflation, potentially prompting them to increase interest rates further. And this is what spooked the gold market, which had been under pressure anyway amid receding U.S. recession risks and fading hopes of a rapid reversal in U.S. monetary policy. Plus, we increasingly see that high interest rates and high treasure yields provide an attractive alternative for safe haven seekers, keeping them away from the gold market. So our view also here remains unchanged. We see more downside than upside for gold and remain cautious. So for us, this current correction is not a buying opportunity. Thanks very much, Carsten. Really good to hear your latest thoughts this morning. Thanks. You're welcome. Now, Ronnie, thank you for joining us this morning as well. So what was discussed at the Investment Committee meeting this week? Good morning, Helen. Yeah, so the investment committee has spent quite some time discussing our fixed income allocation. This discussion was initially triggered by the fact that the US dollar hedging costs for US treasury positions in euro and Swiss franc based portfolios have risen sharply as of late. The problem is particularly acute for the Swiss franc, where US dollar to Swiss franc hedging costs have shot up in recent months, now hovering around the 4% mark while they were only just over 1% at the start of last year. So these costs obviously detract from performance and make it increasingly unaffordable for Swiss franc investors to invest in hedged US treasuries. But there is actually a further dimension to consider here. 
For the Euro and Swiss franc portfolios, we have been holding currency hedged US treasuries for some time because the US, in fact, used to be one of the few places where investment grade government bonds were still available at moderately attractive yields, even after accounting for hedging costs. Since the beginning of last year, however, the relative merits of the Euro and Swiss franc yield curves have caught up considerably. What exactly do you mean by this? Can you elaborate on this a bit? Sure. You you know, the point I was getting at is that the portfolio construction in the fixed income part of our multi-asset portfolios, as it was before this week, was to some extent a legacy of the negative interest rate world. You know, it was not so long ago that protecting capital from confiscation in an environment of financial repression was one of the main issues facing investors in their fixed income portfolios. Just as a reminder, the concept of financial repression involves a variety of measures and means by which governments in fact attempt to transfer wealth from the private to the public sector. So negative policy rates, as we have witnessed them in both the Eurozone but also in Switzerland since mid of last decade, are part of the financial repression toolkit. Because, you know, If you invest in a bond with a negative yield, you are basically guaranteed a loss if you hold the bond to maturity. Now, it was only early last year that both the ECB and the Swiss National Bank started to raise interest rates out of negative territory to fight inflation and thereby putting an end to financial repression. And yes, this definitely has significant portfolio construction implications for both our euro and Swiss franc portfolios. So what's the conclusion then? Were there any changes that the IC decided to make? Yes, there were indeed. So in a nutshell, we shift back to a local yield curve for euro and Swiss franc portfolios. But we also increased the overall US dollar exposure for these portfolios. Specifically, we sell our hedged positions in short-dated US treasuries and reinvest the proceeds in local currency investment-grade corporate bonds which by now offer comparable yields and also have the advantage that investors do not have to take care of foreign currency risks. And as far as longer dated US treasuries are concerned, we keep these positions, but we remove the US dollar currency hedges, hence increasing the overall US dollar exposure. And with these steps, we are essentially unlocking the full diversification benefits of longer dated US treasuries and the US dollar. Because, you know, in in the event of a US recession, which, by the way, is not our base case scenario, but, but, you know, in this event, both longer dated US treasuries and the US dollar should actually help as hedges. In such a scenario, US long yields would fall and uh, longer dated treasuries uh, gain in value accordingly, while the US dollar at the same time should also gain in value following its typical behavior in such risk-off environments. But, you know, even in our base case scenario, which is still a soft landing for the US, we would still be able to benefit from this new positioning. This is first because we think the recent US dollar weakness over the course of the last 12 months versus both the Swiss franc and the euro is stretched. And second, also because local currency curves offer attractive yields again that now can be harvested while at the same time saving some costs by no longer having to pay for expensive currency hedges. And with this, back to you, Helen. Okay, thanks very much, Ronnie. Good to hear from you this morning. 
So that is all for today. Thanks very much to today's guests and thank you all for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please also leave us a review on whichever platform you like to listen on. We would love to hear your feedback. And do join us again tomorrow when I'll be speaking to more of our colleagues, including Tim Gagey, who will provide our usual Friday update on currencies. Until then, have a great day, everyone, and bye for now. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliasbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further other important legal information. Für unsere deutschsprachigen Zuhörer. We would also like to make you aware of Marktanalysen und Gespräche, a monthly podcast in German, where Julius Baer experts discuss some of the latest market developments. We share our key research and insights on today's ever-changing economic landscape in German. Search for Marktanalysen und Gespräche on your favorite podcast player.